0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 32, 1 through 14, and 30 through 35. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us a God who will go before us. And for this fellow, and as for this fellow, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all of the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, This is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people." Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the same God that we are reading about today from so long ago. Thank you that we can securely rest and never have to wonder if you're going to change your mind and change on us because you won't. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I so easily see myself in this passage wondering how long, O oh Lord, before you will come down. Help us to remember your promises, and help us to learn more about who you are today. We want to know you, God. We forget so often and start making idols of other things and think that those things save us. Help us to remember that you and only you are our salvation, and you are all we need. Be with Alan as he brings your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Okay, so we are uh, continuing our look at portions of uh, the book of Exodus, and, and we're really particularly what we're looking at this book is because really the way the Bible tells us that this entire account is a living picture of what it means for us to be rescued from our sins, the same way that the Israelites were rescued from their slavery in Egypt. And, and then what we see as, as the story unfolds throughout the rest of the book, it, it, it's really more than about just the rescue of his people from Egypt. Because, I mean, what's with all this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness about? You know, why, why is that going on? How is that part of God's rescue story? And what we said is that God is using this time to take the ongoing slavery out of their hearts. See, they've been delivered from their physical slavery in Egypt, but the slavery within their hearts is still there. And he's using these encounters to teach them how uh, to live out of the wealth of the freedom that he has bought for them, how to live and act and react as if they really are free. And so when they complain about no food, it reveals that they are still slaves to being handed their daily rations instead of trusting in God. When they care, uh, fail to care for the poor and the oppressed in their midst, it reveals that they're still slaves looking out for their own survival and they don't trust uh, God enough to provide so they can be generous and give away to the needs of those around them. Uh, When they uh, claim that they follow after God but relate to one another with the same survivor's uh, mentality like the world around them has, it reveals that God is not the true object of their worship, but really they're trusting in how God can provide them with the things that they think they really need, and it's not him. And listen, we all have this very same heart of slavery at work within us. We all believe that God loves us and forgives us, and yet we continually find ourselves running after other sources of validation. We're continually beating ourselves up over our shortcomings because though we have been rescued from our sin, we simply don't believe it. It's not real to us yet. And so God has to work that realization into our hearts. In other words, what we're trying to say, is, it's not enough for God to love you. If, if you don't believe it, and if you don't live out of the experience of it, and if you don't draw upon it and live as if it's really true, then you're still going to be scared when things fall apart. You're still going to freak out when things don't go your way. You're still going to be angry when somebody crosses you. Because though you are an adopted child of the king, you're still living as if you're an orphan. And so we come to this particular passage this morning where God is showing his people how they can be free to repent. How we can turn our hearts back to him whenever we fall away. And and so here's the story behind our passage this morning. And this is our first point, just the summary of the story itself. Moses has gone up in a mountain to meet uh, with God. He's going there to get the Ten Commandments, but he's, he's gone a long time. In, in fact, he's gone so long that the people start getting scared that maybe God has killed him up there. Uh, maybe, maybe God took him straight into heaven, or, or maybe he was killed by a wild animal or, or fell off a cliff somewhere. But, but they're beginning to freak out because, listen, Moses was the only real connection that they had had with God. And if Moses doesn't come back... How are we supposed to communicate with God? I mean, we're stuck out here, exposed in the middle of the desert. How in the world are we ever going to be able to get out? And so they craft an idol, a golden calf from their stash of earrings. And I think it's very important for us to understand what's really going on here, because these guys are not actually abandoning God and trying to create a new God. Nor, I think, are they trying to depict the old God's that they lived under back in Egypt. I think they are trying to depict the real God. And they're trying to do that so that they can relate to him with Moses now out of the picture. And I want you to notice the clues here that that's the case. Verses 4 and 8, he says, this is your God. In some cases it's plural. Uh, depends on what interpretation you use there. But he says, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And that statement, who brought you up out of Egypt, was a very specific term that God had used to describe himself to his people over and over again. All right, verse six, He, we see that there's a festival that offers burnt offerings. Where in the world did they get the idea to offer burnt offerings to God? Well, that was something that God had commanded them to do back in chapter 24 when he ratified the covenant with them. But I think you see it especially in verse five when Aaron says, build an altar and tomorrow there's gonna to be a festival to the Lord. Now. I don't I didn't put it up here. It's hard to, it's hard to, to take the, the gr- grammar and change it in my version. But in your Bibles, when it says Lord, it's all capitals, and it's and when it's in all capitals in the Old Testament, what it's doing is it's referring to Yahweh. It's the personal name for God that Aaron was using. Listen, these guys were simply trying to find a physical way. <clears throat> to represent the one true God. Because up till now, that was Moses' job. But now he's gone. And, and these guys haven't forgotten God. They're not consciously rejecting him yet, but they're trying to represent God in a way that worked best for them. <clears throat> and it's in a, it's actually kind of interesting. In the very previous chapter to this, God talked about how he had gifted certain artisans in their midst to be able to make Articles of gold for worship in the tabernacle. And so I I think it was just logical for them to assume that they could apply those same skills to the making of this physical image. Now listen, not too many people have issues with what Israel did here. But there are a lot of people who do have a hard time coming to grips with how God responds. Because God's really mad here. In fact, he threatens to kill them. If you look at verse 10, it says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, right? God is saying, I'm going to wipe these guys off of the face of the earth. And then you get down to verse 35 and God strikes the people with a, with a plague. I mean, listen, God is really pissed here. He really is. And, and, and the question I think we have to grapple with is, does the punishment fit the crime? I mean, it's understandable what these guys were up to here. They just wanted to connect with God. I mean, who could blame them? Well, God obviously does, and he blames them uh, very loudly. Now, the question is why? What are we missing that God is so upset that it might be natural for us to think that he's just overreacting? And I think here's the core issue, and that is they treated God the way they wanted him to be. And this is, I think, how we all relate to God. We all want to fashion God into our own image of what God should be. And we all end up turning God into something that he's not. I mean, listen, God was very, very particular in telling his people, this is how I want you to relate to me. He had just given them the Ten Commandments. He had given them all the instructions about how God wanted to be seen and how he wanted to be worshipped. And they ignored all that, and they came up with their own ideas for how they could go about doing that so again <clears throat> what's the real problem here I mean let's be honest why is it so wrong to create images that help you remember the one true God I mean don't we allow people to do that with us all the time we let people take our picture right even though it's only a one-dimensional understanding of who we are and yet we don't get too upset about that why does God get so upset about it And listen, here's the answer, because any picture or representation of God that we can create ends up hiding more of God than it reveals. Anytime that we depict God in our minds, in our art, in our thoughts, in any way, you are automatically hiding more of God's character than you are revealing. For example, here's a golden calf, and it was made of gold because... Gold is precious, and it was a way of depicting how precious and valuable that God is, right? But God is far more valuable and precious than mere gold. And it was formed after the image of a calf because the calf represented vitality and strength. And yet he's far greater than that because it misses out on the greatness of his patience and his kindness. It doesn't reveal his forgiveness and his grace. Listen, the infinite can never be contained by the finite. And any picture of God, any object or representation of him will end up being less of who God really is because you'll only be portraying a limited God. I mean, th- think of it this way. If, if everybody in Israel <clears throat> saw God as a mighty warrior who was precious and valuable, how could they ever understand his mercy and his grace? How could they ever understand the humility of a baby being born in a stable? How could that ever be the Messiah if he's this great and mighty champion who leads us into victory? Or or even more to the point, if everybody sees God in a certain way, you can only see God and know God in ways that you already understand him, right? And so he could never reveal anything new to you that you previously didn't understand. And so everything that can be known about God is already known about him, which makes him limited, which means he can't help you any more than he already has. Listen, if, if you only picture God as, as loving and happy, you have no ability to understand what God is doing when he's angry or when he teaches you a hard lesson, and you'll struggle to understand his passion for holiness, If you only view God as angry and out to get you, his love will feel conditional based upon your performance. If you view God as as distant and not interested in the daily workings of our world, there'd be no reason to even consult with that God about anything. See, you always filter God through the preconceived notions that, that you have of who he is. And as a result, God will only be able to rescue you and heal you in ways that you already understand instead of being able to do so beyond all you could ever ask or think or imagine. See, you you may, for example, be convinced that your problems are money. And of course, we need more, right? That's the only problem we have with money. And if if I'm faithful enough and if I believe enough, God will reward me with more money. And you have to ask, okay, how does that version of God square with how Jesus lived his life on earth? who was incredibly poor and lived in absolute obscurity, who had very little influence and no friends, was it because he didn't have enough faith? I mean, what else can you conclude if that's your version of God? Or you may be convinced that your problem are people. They're always getting in my way, right? They, they never seem to appreciate me. What I need God to do is to bring me better, more faithful friends who know how to appreciate me. Now, how is that person ever going to be able to hear from God that your real problem is that you're self-absorbed and you need to die to yourself, And there's no room for that kind of learning if you've got a God like that. See, you can't grow and you can't change if your God is designed after the image of who you want him to be. And by the way, this is not merely talking here about art. Uh, For years, the church has gotten all bothered about artistic depictions of God. But I think even that misses the point. Because it's talking about who God is in your mind. It's highlighting attributes of God that you like and ignoring the inconvenient parts of God that kind of bother you. In fact, we see an example of that right here in our text. They decided to offer God a festival. I mean, what God doesn't want? A festival, right? A glamorous party for a glamorous God. But then at the end of the party, you just kind of put him back into his bag and you go about your business. See, Because you see, this view of God controls God to be able to fit into your world and into your expectations. And it doesn't allow God to be, as C.S. Lewis puts it, not safe, but he's good. So how does all this connect with us? What does this mean for your life and my life here today? Because none of us are out crafting images of gold, right? Where does this connect to me? And I think if we are honest, we have to admit that we, we all do the same things all the time. I mean, think about this. Almost everybody in this world in general believes in God. But how do most people describe that God? You know, ask somebody, who do you think God is? And most people will say something like, well, I like to think of God as, and fill in the blank. Or, or maybe for me, God is more like fill in the blank. I mean, it's amazing to me how comfortable people feel creating their own version of God that suits their passions. But but you see, here's the problem. How would you ever know that you're worshiping the real God and not some figment of your imagination? You know, a version of God that you simply made up in your own mind to help you deal with your version of life. How could you ever know? Because listen, a fake God never challenges you. A a fake God will never call you out. A, A fake God never tells you hard things that you don't want to hear. Because your own version of God will always agree with everything you say and think and do because you made him. Of course he is. Listen, have you ever had to struggle with your version of God? Does he or she, whatever you've made up, does it confuse you at times because you don't understand what in the world he's doing? If not, it can't be the real God. Because the real God will always call you out on things. The real God will always challenge your priorities. The real God will always lead you through passages of life that make absolutely no sense to you at all. God, what are you doing? I don't get it. And are you willing to listen to that kind of God? Or can you just easily blow him off because your version of God gives you the latitude to do that? Listen, it works the same way in any friendship. Um, if... if you have a friend and they're not able to push back on you it's not a real friendship if they can't call you out or critique you in some way that's not a genuine friendship you have to be willing to take what they say to heart and to listen or it's not a friend otherwise it's just a codependent relationship of mutually using each other and and you know it takes time and, and energy to build trust to create friendships You know, think of it this way, our online versions of ourselves tend to be uh, shallow, right, controlled, uh, just on the surface. We let people know just the things about us that we want them to know and hide the things we don't want them to know, whereas our offline versions of ourselves tend to be more deeper and more honest and more personal. And you see, this is really the question that I'm trying to press on you and me right now is do you have an online relationship with God or do you have an offline relationship with God? You know, sometimes instead of a true friendship what we end up with is an unhealthy and abusive relationship with other people. When you're not allowed to speak the truth to them. When you're not allowed to even be yourself. And the relationship is controlling and it's demanding and it's abusive. And I think there are many times when we have those very same kinds of abusive relationships with God where we are in the role of the oppressor and we are demanding of God where we try to control him with our good works and we don't allow him to speak back to us some of the things we really don't want to hear. Listen, anytime that you think of God as whatever, you're already rejecting part of his nature because he's more than just that. He's far more. And that's exactly what these people were doing. And we all do this. We all have things that we like about God, and we all have things that really bother us and intimidate us. We all have things that we overstress about God because it benefits us and things that we understress because they kind of get in our way and cramp our style. Uh, take for example one of the most common ideas where people say, you know, I, I just like to think of God as, as love. He forgives, he he's patient, he's he's kind. He's understanding. That's how I like to think of God. Okay, all that's true, but how are you defining love? Does love mean he never holds me accountable? Does love mean that he forgives me no matter what I do? Does love mean that whatever makes me happy must be okay? Does love mean that God isn't that concerned about my own personal holiness? Because people mean all of those things and more when they say, I just like to think of God as love. We always emphasize one aspect over another. And if you see God as loving, you will tend to minimize his holiness and therefore my need to obey things that I don't like. And if you see God as holy and righteous and demanding, then his love won't really look that big to you. And you'll be looking for other ways to earn his favor besides grace. If you see God as patient but he has limits, you'll live in constant fear that he's going to give up on you. And listen, the biggest conundrum about God that has confused the minds of people for centuries is how in the world can God, in some parts of the Bible, be so holy and so demanding that he threatens to wipe people out entirely for crossing him, like here in our passage. While there's other places where he's so loving that he offers to give his own life for us. I mean, this is what causes people so often to pick the version of God that they like from along this spectrum. Oh, I think I'll take a God mm, this holy and and that loving. That should fit well within my lifestyle. You know, I I don't want one that's too uptight, but it would be nice if he helped enforce my standards on the rest of the world so I could be frustrated with people when they don't meet them. But listen, God says, I'm more holy than you could ever imagine. And I'm more loving than you ever dared hope or dream. But how can he be both? I mean, I guess he could you know, have moods that swing him back and forth between being really righteous and really loving. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he is fully both all the time. How is that even possible? And, of course, the answer, in fact, the only answer is, is Jesus. God is so holy that he demands that we obey 100% of the time or we die. But he's also so loving that Jesus steps in and offers to die that in our place. And you see, only with Jesus can you have a God who is that holy, who punishes every sin, who doesn't let anything go. Every evil deed will be punished to the max, which means there is such a thing as real justice in the world. And yet he's loving enough to come and take that punishment for us, which means that there's real grace and forgiveness and mercy in this world and you see without Jesus I mean you could have a holy God who's holy to a point I guess I mean nobody's perfect no one can be perfectly holy or he would have to destroy us all and and so you know we all need a little bit of grace or there'd be no hope for any of us and so you don't really have any ultimate justice for all the wrongs in the world and without Jesus you can have a loving God but he's only loving to a point point. Because bad people still need to pay for their mistakes. And so we have to work hard to put in at least some of the work to get on his good side. Which means nobody is ever fully forgiven. We're just forgiven to a point. But you see, only in Jesus can you have both at the same time. Because the full wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. And the full obedience of Jesus is credited to our spiritual accounts. And that's the only version of God that can be fully holy and fully loving without having to compromise on one or the other. Listen, in the end, it really all comes down to this. Either I serve God or he serves me. See, do we fashion a God after an image that we want him to be, that we like him to be, that we prefer him to be, or does he fashion me? And you see, most non-Christians that I've talked to balk when they hear about a God like this. Uh, Because what if he asked me to do things that I don't want to do? What if he asked me to give up things I don't want to give up? What if I don't agree with everything that this God says? And i got to tell them, you're not looking for the real God then. Because if God is real, then he would have to contradict you. And of course, if he's not, then he never will. If you have a God that always agrees with you, it's a God you just made up. And I think as Christians, we often do the very same thing. We believe in God, but we like to control just how much he asks of us. I mean, it's, it's okay if, to give a few bucks to the church every month, but I'm, I'm not giving that much. Or I'm, or I'm willing to obey what God is asking of me here, but not until I get past this deadline. Not if it's going to make me uncomfortable. Not if it's going to cost me too much. Listen, even Christians find ways to be comfortable with ignoring God's commands because they don't suit you at the moment. They're not convenient at the moment. And of course, we know God will forgive me, so I can always come back later and make up for it, and so we just give in. Or or maybe for you, you're struggling on the other end of the spectrum, and you tell yourself, well, God cannot truly forgive me unless I'm really, really, really sorry And I'm really sad for my sins and I beat myself up and maybe wallow a bit in the mess that I've made of things. But listen, that God can't forgive you because it's not a real God. It's a God you just made up. And that's why beating yourself up never leads to joyful experiences of grace and forgiveness and acceptance because it can't. Listen, here's the bottom line here. And here's God's challenge that he gives to us today. Will you worship me as I am? Or will you only worship me as you want me to be? Your own version of God might feel easier and more comfortable and more safe, but it can never heal you, it can never change you, it can never convict you. So, how does Moses fix this problem? How is there any rescue from this sentence of death that God proclaims over his people? You know, in verse 8, we see that the people have turned away from God. They're they're done with the real version of God. And so in verse 13, Moses starts by advocating on behalf of the people, reminding God of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then in verse 11, he reminds them of his reputation before the nations, and particularly before uh, Egypt. And, And it appears that God listened to Moses, and he relents. And yet when we get to verse 33, God seems to be saying that though he's not going to wipe them out entirely, and though he does still inflict them with a plague in the very last verse, he's still going to blot their names from the book of life. And so Moses intervenes with God one more time and offers the most unimaginable exchange when he says, Okay, God, why don't you blot my name out instead? Let me take the punishment of the people myself. And God says, no, their names are still stricken from my book. Now, what's going on in these verses? It it appears that Moses has managed to save the people physically, but not spiritually, not eternally. And so let's just ask the obvious question. Why doesn't God take Moses up on his offer? Why doesn't he strike his name from his book instead? I mean, what a heroic ending, right? We love stories of heroes dying to save their loved ones. This would have made a great ending to the story. But God will not let Moses be the hero of this story. And why? Well, essentially because Moses doesn't have the money that it's going to cost to pay the debt. Right? It was just too much. It was beyond what he could afford. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 49. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Listen, Moses could not pay their debt because he had his own debt that needed to be paid. And so God simply says, no, you can't. And then the story just ends. And the people trudge off for their 40 year journey to death no hero no rescue no happy ending we're like well wait a minute this passage I think intentionally leaves us hanging wondering where in the world the hero of the story could possibly be found because listen this is not just a story in need of a happy ending but this is our story this is yours and mine because we need this very same rescue too And so we want to know, how? Where do we find it? And of course, Jesus is that hero. Where this golden calf was insufficient to represent the full picture of who God is, God himself sends us an image, the image of his own son. See, this is the reason why we don't need any images to represent God. God already sent us one. The perfect representation of God is found in Jesus. His compassion is enough to weep with the broken. His power is strong enough to rescue the broken. His grace is enough to pay for the rebellion of the broken. His wisdom is enough to lead us to experience deeper and deeper, deeper levels of freedom from the control and the brokenness of our sin. And if he can do that, he can do it because he's a full God that no man-made image could ever contain. Listen, Moses is not blotted out here because Jesus is. And that's the only reason why you and I are not blotted out as well. As a writer of the Hebrews puts it, he sacrificed, talking about Jesus, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. See, the, the people here are offering sacrifices, but it's not enough. And Moses makes an offering, Aaron makes an offering, but that's not enough. And then Moses offers his own life in exchange, but even that's still not enough. And listen, we all have this very same drive at work within us. We, we work ourselves to exhaustion in hopes that we can earn enough, that we can accomplish enough to pronounce ourselves good and, and worthy, but, but it's never enough. And we do our good deeds and morality in the church before God in hopes that we can present ourselves to him as being worthy enough to merit his blessings, but even that's never enough. And I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to who are completely comfortable that on the judgment day, they're going to stand before God and say, well, hey, I wasn't perfect, but I did my best. I mean, I was better than most, which if you think about it, it's not possible, but I was better than most, uh, and, and it's going to be enough. He's going to let me in. And what we're told here is no, it won't be enough, and he won't let them in. These are the people about whom Jesus says in Matthew 7, many Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Because listen, you either put your hope in your own version of God that you managed to please yourself or you put your hope in Jesus who was able to please God perfectly on your behalf. And that's our only hope today. Listen, our hearts are drawn to the beauty of a sacrifice like this. I mean, that's why we love it when Frodo was willing to die for the world. That's why we love it when Harry Potter's mother sacrifices herself for her son. That's why we love it when Aslan substitutes himself for Edmund. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He is the hero that rescues us when nobody else can. But in the end, it all comes down to this decision. Are you going to rest your eternal destiny on the version of a God that you have created? Are you willing to risk your eternity on that God? Or will you rest on the version of God that he reveals himself in his word? A God so holy that you deserve to die. But a God so loving that he was willing to take that punishment for us. Listen, in the end, life isn't about what's worth living for. It's really about what's worth dying for. And for you, you were what God was worth dying for. And no other version of God that you make up can love you like that. No other version of God that you make up can heal you like that. Your other versions of God will demand things from you. You die for me. right? You serve me. You obey me. You keep up with me or I'll condemn you. Only the true God demands more than the strictest version of any God out there, and yet willingly takes all of the punishment for our inability to obey him. Because God thought that you were worth taking that sacrifice. And, and And for many of us, that's an uncomfortable place for us to sit in that space. Because as Bert said earlier, everything inside us wants to earn something, we all want to help in some way. But this is the only solution to our life's struggle for peace and security and meaning. The heart of religion that the church loves to portray is all about how much of your life and your sacrifice that you can offer to God to please him, to get on his good side, to maybe let you into heaven. But the gospel, the heart of the gospel is how God sacrificed his life for you. And that's how personal transformation comes about. When you can see that the conundrum of life has been satisfied in Jesus, that God is holy and righteous enough to punish all sin, which creates a world of justice. And yet he's loving enough to pay for that penalty himself, which creates a world of love. And when you can have true justice and true love meeting in your life, it creates fireworks, power, This is where transformation comes from. And listen, if you are not experiencing any genuine spiritual transformation in your life today, it's not because God isn't powerful enough. And it's not because he's given up on you or he doesn't care. It's because you're bowing down to a God that's not real and he can't save you. You only have a partial God. You have pieces of a God, but you don't have all of him. And a partial God can't rescue you. Listen, this is why God is so often confusing to you, why God is so t- sometimes just frustrating. What in the world are you doing? This is why God will occasionally intentionally lead you into the valley of the shadow of death, and you're saying, God, I, I don't understand a God like that. I don't get what he's doing in my life right now. He seems so distant and so angry, and I, I, I can't even feel him right now. Okay, now you know you're dealing with a real God. He's not safe. He's good because he's bigger and wiser and more loving than any of us could ever understand. But that also means that he's able to rescue us far beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. Is your God big enough to do that in your life today? The real God is, but the many me versions of God never will. Let's pray. Lord, we understand a little better now why you are so upset when the people try to create their own version of you our hearts want to believe that it's enough to have our own understandings of the real God but it's not because our own understandings are small they're limited they're selfish they're twisted and we don't have a real God that can save us That can speak into our lives and call us out and hold us accountable and Lord we admit that we need a God like that because we are a mess and we are self-absorbed and we will run and chase after everything that makes me happy and fulfilled and content and yet it never does because we were made for so much more than this and we're just not wise enough to see it and so we need a big God to break into our foolishness and show us the God that we were designed for and the life that you created us to live and I pray Lord that you would help for us to have a bigger and bigger picture of God each day so that we have a bigger and bigger picture of our sin and a bigger and bigger picture of your love and that the combination would be something that just transforms our lives as we stand in awe that a God this holy and this righteous could love me that much. me pray this in Jesus name. Amen.